You're listening to Leverage. To Leverage. To Leverage. An ASA Studios production. everyone, and welcome to another episode of Leverage, ASA's podcast on the politics of aging. I'm Leanne Clark-Shirley, VP of Programs and Thought Leadership at ASA, and I'm joined by Peter Caldas, President and CEO. Hello, Peter. Hi, Leanne. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Great. Excellent. So on this episode, I hear you had a fantastic conversation with Josie Cowley-Penny. Tell us about that. So Josie Calipani is one of my favorite advocates in the caregiving space in, in really her passion, her commitment, and her knowledge of the intricacies of really difficult concepts like long-term care insurance and um, our, our very uh, difficult system uh, that needs to be navigated if you are a caregiver. So I had a great conversation with her. We talked about something called the WISH Act, Mm-hmm. which uh, is a new bill that was introduced by Congressman Tom Suozzi that basically tries to find some middle ground to make long-term care financing more affordable. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, I know we ran a piece by Joanne Lynn on our blog recently about the WISH Act, um, but I imagine Josie probably comes at this from an equity lens. That's her bailiwick. Absolutely. And she talked about it in the in in the context of praising what the Wish Act is trying to accomplish, but it still manages to make uh, long-term care insurance um, inaccessible mm. for those who just flat out still wouldn't be able to afford it, uh, even if the Wish Act came into uh, pass, even if it was passed by by Congress. So she makes some really great points in our conversation. As always, I enjoy talking to her. Uh, but I know others across the country are sort of trying to experiment with making long-term care insurance more affordable. Yep. State of Washington is implementing their new uh, public long-term care insurance program. And it sounds like there's some folks that are opting for private coverage. So I think that I've heard that the private long-term care insurance market in Washington is um, overwhelmed right now, interestingly. What a what a strange time. Absolutely. But I will tell you, if you have advocates like Josie on your side, um, I suspect we'll start seeing more and more changes to long-term care insurance uh, and making it more accessible for all. So I hope, I hope everyone enjoys uh, this interview with Josie Calipani, who's the Deputy Director of Family Values at Work. Yep. Let's hear it now. So let me introduce everyone to Josie Calipani. Josie is Deputy Director of Family Values at Work. She was born in Malawi, and Josie has been a social worker and seen firsthand the systemic challenges families experience. She has worked in policy advocacy for two decades and is committed to transforming systems and policies, you know, including those that would dismantle racism and, and fight for caregivers. Josie, welcome to Leverage. Thanks, Peter. It's so fun to be with you all today. So today we're going to talk about a very uh, important topic, although can be extraordinarily complicated, but let's just sort of break it down. You know, a year 
in a two-bed nursing home can cost upwards of $93,000, causing many to exhaust their funds, or it's even a non-starter for so many. Yeah. And in theory, private insurance is a tool for protection against such a financial risk, but the private long-term care insurance market is out of reach for many and really has been declining over the past two decades with something like fewer than 10% of Americans having such policies. So today, you and I are talking, Josie, about the Wellbeing Insurance for Seniors to Be at Home Act, or WISH Act, which was introduced in early July by Congressman Tom Suozzi, uh, who is a Democrat from Long Island. Uh, it basically is designed to repair this broken system for financing long-term services and supports. And it does a couple of things. It creates a new uh, federal long-term care insurance trust fund that would pay for the, the quote-unquote catastrophic period of long-term care. Uh, it enables private insurance companies to offer affordable coverage plans for older Americans uh, during this, these initial years of potential disability. And it's paid for by social insurance contributions made by workers and their employers. Because ASA's, one of ASA's uh, policy priorities is health equity, I wanted to talk to you in particular about the WISH Act through that lens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some advocates are very optimistic about the WISH Act. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, it seems to be uh, welcomed as a middle of the road fix. What are your impressions? So, Peter, first, I'm so excited to be here and to talk about this issue. We know what care can look like, particularly for communities of color, for, particularly for women, LGBTQ communities, you know, like historically marginalized communities that are often at the center of providing care, but also then marginalized when it comes to accessing and affording care. So it's exciting to you know, be able to have this conversation, to be able to look at different proposals that are out there and really, really talk about them. So you know, when I think about the WISH Act, first, you know, I think it's important to say that this is a catastrophic plan proposal, which means that it covers the back end of costs and what, what we need to understand about what that means is there is a front-loaded level of responsibility that the person who needs care is still responsible for before this particular benefit kicks in. So like let's we just have to hold that, right? That that it requires a level of responsibility that many of us are trying to figure out right now, right? Like how do we piece together savings and put a little bit away and prepare for you know, rainy COVID days or, you know, um, long-term care or some sort of, you know, all of those things. So we're sort of already trying to figure that out. For many of us, that's already the situation we're in. Now, I think any proposal that is pushing for our country, our elected officials and our policymakers to have the conversation that requires us figuring this out right, for communities of color, for people with disabilities, for um, people with chronic illness, and for aging adults and their families and caregivers, I think it's big. It, anytime we do that and push the conversation, huge, we need to be having this conversation. Now, 
I do think that there are some plans that are better than others. And, you know, we have to look at the political environment that we're in. I don't necessarily think the WISH Act is terrible, but do I think it find, do I think it really transforms the current situation that many of us already find ourselves in? No, I don't. And I think in a political in the political moment we're in, where we're coming off the back end of who knows what end we're in when it comes to the pandemic. <laughs> um, but when we're coming through this pandemic, and for many families who've already been str struggling to cobble together pieces of care and to make care work, I don't know that this is the solution that our communities need to lead with. Do I think it needs to be part of the conversation? Absolutely. Do I think it impacts a certain group of people? Absolutely. Do I think we're talking about um, gender equity when we think about women make traditionally less than men, particularly working women of color. Um, and then we put the responsibility on them to be able to finance their own care on the front end when things first happen. And then at a certain point, then this kicks in. I just don't think this is the way to lead and to lead with thinking about um, the impact of the needs of being able to access and afford care for communities of color. So, so Josie, let's get, let's get to the, to the why um, some might say that the WISH Act is going to open up uh, the opportunity for folks to be able to afford long-term uh, long care insurance, basically. What, what, what is the crux of the issue as to why you don't think that's the case? So I think the folks that we're talking about are likely to be able to afford care, can afford care anyways. <laughs> the folks that need care or will need care um, are usually the folks that can afford care as it is. We know that that means women and working women of color primarily who already can't afford care. So if we are requiring that people spend, you know, that people use their own resources and funds for a year, maybe up to five years before a benefit kicks in, we're actually, you know, it actually doesn't work for most of the folks who already cannot afford care. Um, so that that's one of my primary things. Now, you know, I think I think the WISH Act is right in thinking about a federal solution. I think the WISH Act is right in thinking about a trust fund. I think the WISH Act is right in thinking about employer and employee contributions, right? So there, those things, all of those principles I can totally get along with. But then there's other things that I just question, like the role of private insurance companies, right? Like you said, Peter, that the industry are, are on private insurance when it comes to long-term care is already collapsing. And the idea that we would put forth a solution that's about strengthening the private insurance market on long-term care versus a public program that supports affordability and centers you know, communities of color and their access to care seems slightly lopsided to me. You know, it's interesting. You, 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 you mentioned some of the, the benefits or some of the pluses that you see the WISH Act. I think there's also one more that I'd like to get your thoughts on, and that is related to the waiting period is the income requirements. Do, do you think that inserting income um, as part of the waiting period makes a difference to the folks we're talking about? You know, so I do think that we have to consider income requirements, you know, in all in all of the public programs that we sort of put forward. What I worry about is, um, you know, where those income requirements fall 
And if we are looking at particularly, you know, the WISH Act sort of looks at income ranges and looking at lower income um, folks who make lower incomes as being able to access the services first, but they're also the ones who can't pay for the services. And so there's sort of this tension there um, that, you know, folks who are making lower incomes would access the benefit first, but then if you're making lower incomes, what can you really, you know, what can you really afford upfront before a benefit kicks in? And, you know, the other thing that I often think about is, an, you know, a term I haven't heard for a long time, but I started thinking about it when I started thinking about the WISH Act. You know, we all remember the donut hole, right? Um, so what happens if, you know, your income qualifies you, right? Um, and you're going to get the benefit first, but there's actually a year or two or three year look back period in which you're responsible for your own cost. At some point, your ability to pay for your own costs is going to run out before a back end catastrophic plan kicks in. So there's sort of this like hole, this gap, right, where we're still in the same situation of being able to uh, of not being able to afford an access um, afford an access care. So it's almost as if best of intentions with the Wish Act, but it doesn't actually do the greatest good for the most people. I think you know, like I said, I do think that there is a there's a section of our population, right, who is you know middle or upper um, middle income folks who are making enough to cover daily costs and are able to put aside um, savings and are able to invest in assets such as houses and maybe even investment property, right? Um, and are able to really tap into those resources and benefits to cover long-term care. But actually, if we're asking people to deplete their assets and savings in order to qualify for a benefit, sort of sounds like Medicaid anyways, you know, in a way that I'm actually not sure, not sure what's different. And again, particularly, I think for lower middle income populations and low income populations, which we know are highly comprised of communities of color, highly comprised of women. There was a study that came out a couple years ago that said the average middle income family cannot afford a $400 unexpected expense right that a majority of our families in this country cannot afford an emergency that's that's a flight home for me if my mom gets sick right if we're already in a situation where our economy and people in our communities can't afford that level of an emergency i just don't know that this is this is the best solution to lead with now do i i also think that we could have an environment where we're layering solutions right we could have a public program that's really covering the front end costs but maybe folks we know that even our best intentions isn't going to create the perfect program they're going to be people who are left out whether they're they're making too much and aren't eligible and so there there's an opportunity to really sort of layer these programs together so that there's a full continuum of coverage again i just don't know with the political with the limited political capacity and capital that we have and the limited financial and economic capital that we have, that this is where to start. So um, th this is sort of where I wanted to end with you, which is since we're talking about this topic through a lens of health equity, give give us some concrete examples. If, if you had your way of what solutions you'd rather see 
you know, ignoring the political realities for just a second, let's have some fun. How could this be more equitable? How could we make the WISH Act apply, uh, have a greater impact? You know, there's a, one of the things that I think about is that there's a level of dignity in being able to cover your own costs, whether that's all of them or some of them. So I'm not saying that ne where we necessarily need to start is free care for everybody. Now, you know, that's, that's my dream. You know, why don't we have a national public goods fund that covers essential health care costs? The ACA has gone a long way to do that. Medicaid covers some of the gaps, but in challenging, you know, in challenging ways when it comes to assets and income eligibility. But, you know, people should be able to access the care they need when they need without it becoming financially and economically destabilizing. And for working communities of color and families of color, this these are like dominoes, right? So it's not just like, one person can't afford care and they're sort of there figuring it out, but our families come together to cobble together pieces to make it all work. So this has like multi-person impact, what, what we're talking about in one family. And I would love to be able to see people being able to get the care they need when they need without it being destabilizing. What, you know, one of the ways we could do that, especially because there is dignity in being able to pay your own way, right, when you can, there's, you know, there's a way of thinking about, okay, well, if you're making a certain income and you need care, what does it look like to have some of your care subsidized, right, um, at the point that you need care? Not two years after you've tried to pay for it yourself, if we're subsidizing care, then our ability to pay for our own care, a portion of our own care goes a longer way and almost starts to accomplish some of the same goals that the WISH Act is, um, hopes, to hopes to achieve, right? Prolonging people's dependence on Medicaid, um, decreasing the state and federal costs of Medicaid that we know are ballooning, um, but having a public-private partnership in being able to really cover um, these costs. So that's one, you know, that's one way. If we're going to create a new trust fund and collect employer-employee um, contributions, why start with back end and not with front end? Right. And like, you know, so I, I have questions about that. And why not? Why not just start there knowing that people are going to need front end coverage? Why require people to pay out as much as they can until they have nothing, nothing to pass on to generations, no generational wealth accumulated? Right. All of these challenges. So in my in my dream world, you need care tomorrow and you're able to access it and afford it. I know the devil's in the detail. I've done public policy. I know it doesn't work like that. But I certainly think that we can get to a place where that's the case and definitely not require 10 years of work of work quarters, right? Like what what happens if you need care tomorrow? You know, like there's sort of these problematic things if you're um, a person of color who needs care sooner than later. And we can do it. You know, I'm confident that we can do it. Yeah, and, and not to mention you know, zooming out of this particular bill, but more systemic issues like the simple cost. Why does it cost $100,000 uh, for a year's stay in a nursing home, exactly. right? Right, like zooming out a little bit. Um, and and speaking of zooming out, I wanna end on, on one question for you, sort of related to the WISH Act. And that is um, the current proposals on the Hill uh, related to the the budget and the infrastructure bills, what are your 
What are your takes, particularly on some of the caregiving related work that's happening? Listen, I think when I think about that, I think we're just in a, an exciting moment right now where the needs of people is being matched with the conversation that's happening in decision-making spaces. So there's a level of excitement that I have about that. And to see a commitment of $400 billion to go towards home and community-based services and long-term services and supports, to see a real conversation about adding dental and vision to Medicare, like, hello, you know, like there's something incredibly exciting about that. And I think, you know, I, I see those proposals as an overdue deposit into the system that we need um, to have over a long period of time. So I think it's long overdue. I think it starts to address some of the issues that we really have in a, in a critical and critical way. And it shows the thing that I think many of us have been talking about for a long time, that the private market can't solve this, that there's a level of commitment from our federal government, from our state government to figure this out. There's just, you know, there's just no way that I can see the private market solving this. And so it's, it's, it's exciting to me to see all of the things that are being discussed. I have all sorts of nervousness, Peter, as, as you can imagine, about, you know, the devil's in the detail and and what is that number going to look like in the end? How do we hold true to the fact that what's been committed is $400? We can't, $400 billion, we can't go below that. And that has to be seen as a deposit into the infrastructure that we really, really need. We can't go backwards from that. We can only build on top of that um, in a really, you know, in a really meaningful way. I'm curious what you think about all of the chatter in budget reconciliation and on the Hill and long-term care and Medicare. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, so so first of all, uh, I echo your sentiments that for us to be having a national debate about these issues that have been long, long festering and and long been discussed, at least in the field of aging, is remarkable. It's 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 yeah. it creates goosebumps, for lack of a better term. And when the president of the United States is talking about caregivers, um, you know many just don't believe it, that it's happening. And and now take it a step further, we're talking about $400 billion potentially. Right. So, um, and, and, and we're cl so close to the finish line. To your point, to make that deposit, but to also remind states that this is good for them, for their budgets, for their swelling aging population. Yeah. It's good for our members who are, community-based organizations whose services many times go underutilized. Yeah. This will increase the utilization rate of their services, right? And then not to mention, I know, uh, you know, issues you know very, you're, that are very dear to you, and that is the caregiver, the direct care workforce, the opportunity to actually earn a living wage and to work in conditions that make sense. Yeah, um, It's a huge opportunity. I, look, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, and I want to believe that in this moment, when you have, uh, when we're in the midst of a pandemic, when you have the national debate, when everyone's, everyone is struggling to figure out what care looks like, that yeah. will rise to the occasion. I know there are competing priorities. Yeah. Um, but look, even if um, we get nearly as much as the president proposed in his vision, 
Uh, it's going to be, at least for the field of aging, a probably the most consequential um, legislative list of policies supported since the passage of the 1965 Older Americans Act. I mean, it is that big of a deal. Yes. Um, and I know we're excited about it, the ASA. I know our members are are gearing up. Yes. But it, it just it, there's just so much opportunity, whether it's uh, this legislation will bridge the, the digital divide, it'll combat yes. ageism, increase health equity, combat climate change, all of which are ASA's policy priorities. But more importantly, there are all these social and economic issues that for so long Congress has basically ignored. Um, and I'm just thrilled that we're even we're even having these conversations. This is real, Joseph. This could really happen. I know. And Peter, the thing I want to underscore that you said is like it's the it's the first time that policy for people who need care, family caregivers who are providing uncompensated care, and the care workforce is in dialogue together, not in competition, right? And we've long been saying that you can't solve for one without solving for the other. They're so intricately connected. Um, and to see all of that happening in one package is huge. And, you know, how how we do it in this moment, what it looks like is also so consequential because of the thing that you just said, that we, our communities and through our own personal experiences and through the advocacy communities, we spend decades gearing up for this moment. And it comes around, not every year, not every election cycle, but every 10, 20, 30 years. So we have to get it foundationally right, right now, because our next bite at the apple, you know, isn't coming next year, right? Even though we, our communities will do all the work to push for it to come next year. We know that our next round at transformational change with this level of financial investment um, may not come around, you know, for the next couple of years. So it it is so important that we get it right and get it right now. Um, and is the other thing that I really think about when it comes to the intent of the WISH Act is actually the WISH Act assumes a level of success in the um, reconciliation package and starts to already is like foreseeably already building on top of that, which I think is how all of us have to be thinking. We have to think about getting it right right now, the $400 billion that's in there for home and community-based services. We know childcare is a huge issue for family caregivers, care workers, for grandparents raising grandchildren. We know, you know that paid leave as our population is working into later life, that we know that paid leave is critical for an older working population. All of these things, getting it right right now is important and building on top of it almost immediately becomes as equally important. Josie, I am so glad that you are one of those advocates who's trying to get it right. And thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to, to seeing you soon, Josie. I know, Peter, we have to do this again. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Leverage. Make sure to check out our issue of Generations Journal, edited by Josie Kelly Penny, that's coming out in October. And we'll see you next time for another conversation on the politics of aging. Take care. Bye.